Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 70 and we're walking with Shaka. He spent the bulk of his early and teenage years in Zulu country, that area to the north of the Amplatuzi between the Langeni and the White Mfulusi rivers. Towards the end of his youth, things became increasingly difficult for him, although the history is rather murky. There are hints in oral tradition as to what was going on, and specific events can only be covered in a tentative manner. The relationship between the Zulu and the Langeni people was complicated. Mgabi, the chief of the Langeni, was independently minded, and Senzanga Kona was trying to compete with him for the allegiance of others nearby, including the Mtetwa, who were the power block in the region. There were also the Thule to the northeast between the Langeni and the Mtetwa zone of control. Mgabi died around 1795. Shaka's uncle on his mother's side, Inkazonki, took over as regent until one of Mgabi's sons came of age. Nkazonki appointed Mfundeko as the new chief, but the majority of Langeni preferred Makadama, or at least that's according to Zulu oral tradition. It was Makidama who'd been known as Shaka's bully as a boy, and the story of how he apparently insulted Shaka continues. When Makidama arrived to take up his position after living amongst the Tolu people, his attendant, by the name of Insindwani, played a belittling game. This story is really an allegory, folks, because it's highly unlikely that post-adolescents would have played this game called Stones in a Kraal. Boys would collect stones of particular color and natural beauty and place them in little kraals they made. These would represent their cattle. During childhood, Makedama had often seized Shaka's stones for his own, a symbolic act. Later, when he arrived from the Kulu, Makedama's attendant, according to the folk legends, grabbed Shaka's stones and threw them into Makedama's cattle kraal. It's a metaphor for a deeper disagreement. Shaka by now had become embroiled in the Langeni succession dispute, but had supported the losing side, so to speak. While some say that at this point Shaka was inducted into a Langeni Ibutu, or age regiment, he was definitely jubed or inducted by his own father, Senzanga Kona, into the Iwombi regiment of the Zulu, along with his other brothers. And you've heard about the Iwombi last podcast and its importance in Zulu military history. Later, Shaka would order the Awambi into battle. They were the shock troops of the Zulu. But first, he was forced to seek help from Dingazwayo after he became a troublemaker in the eyes of Senzanga Kona. Shaka would remain fond of the Awambi and eventually sent it to fight against the fearful Zwide of the Ndwanwe. But that was later. Shaka formed a friendship with his future general in Dengezi, and this friendship, along with others forged before he fled to Dingazwayo, were going to stand him in good stead when he eventually returned to lead the Zulu. The Langeni succession dispute intersected with a dispute brewing within Zulu circles at the same time, and Shaka was caught in the middle. As historian Dan Wiley points out, this is murky water, but here is how it was thought to have played out. As Shaka was about to succeed Singh Zangakona as chief of the Zulu, he found himself facing some who said he was not the true successor. Shaka was the eldest boy, but Nandi was not Senzanga Kona's favorite wife. Bibi was, as you know. Remember the story of how Senzanga Kona had made her people change their surnames from Mbeli to the Ntuli? Mkabi was actually Senzanga Kona's first wife, but she bore no sons. The important fact is that Nandi was from Mkabi's establishment, so her son Shaka had precedence on the matter of who was to be chief. This whole succession and leadership dispute blew up when Sigujana, who was one of Bibi's younger sons, announced he was the chosen one. 
The problem for Sigujana was that three of the most influential women of the Zulu, Mkabai, Mawa and Mama, didn't think so. Watching all of this was the aging Senzangakona, who didn't have long to live, and he suddenly announced that the men of the Iwombi Ibuto were not permitted to marry. Of course, Shaka himself would perfect the system of halting marriages, as you know by now, so he took careful note of how to manage dangerous men and succession disputes. Senzangakona, of course, could not stop the men from having sex or seeking long-term partners anyway. Zululand has many forests and hilltops, little shady streams where liaisons can be hidden. These men began to shlobonga with women, and Senzangakona ordered the men to be sent away, including all of his sons, except Sigujana. And the list of those dispatched for their dalliances with Zulu maidens is rather long. Dingan, Matangana, Inkojana, Sopana, Mfisu, Imbudleli, Somajuba, and Imdungwazi. All of these ran off to the Kwabe, living along the Mtlatuzi River. Shaka went in the other direction, to the Langeni, which was rather unfortunate because he ran straight into his old bully, Makedama, the stones and the kraal kid. He was now the Langeni Nkosi, the chief, and Makedama continued his childhood terror campaign against Shaka, or at least... That's what Zulu tradition says. Makedama made Shaka drink the amalaza, or the first milk from a cow which is inferior in taste and fats, and of course the storytellers say he made Shaka drink last. We believe these tales are a metaphor for how he was treated rather than fixed facts, but they serve as an important guide. Makedama's nickname was Injumani, the horse of Mgabi, and he was both ferocious and incredibly self-centered and arrogant. It was his use of a short-hafted stabbing spear that gave Shaka his lead on the Ikwa, his main weapon, similar to the Roman army's stabbing sword. Makedama had killed Mvunyelwa Kamandiza of Mkizi, using a stabbing spear after the hapless man started a feud with Makedama's brother Zinlandlo. On return from his bloody mission, where he had personally stabbed Mvunyelwa, he is reported to have said, People are afraid! Are people like Buck that they should be stabbed at a distance? They must come to close quarters and be stabbed with one Esakai. Shaka took note. Makidama's other favorite pastime, although many historians dispute this as merely demonizing material in favor of Shaka, was to impale people with barbed Esakais, Izinhlenhla, by laying them on their backs and driving the Esakais through their necks, their breastbone, their hands and their feet. Oral history tells us that Shaka witnessed at least one campaign where Makedama deployed the stabbing spear technique, a close-up hand-to-hand warfare. That was in a joint venture between Inkazonke and Makedama when they attacked the Vilakazi homestead. The Isukulu of the Vilakazi, the leader, was Inga Shumayela, who was dragged back to Makedama's great place and installed as the Induna of one of the regiments. This idea had gained ground in recent times. No more were the leaders killed or exiled. Good fighting men were in demand and assimilated in the victor's army, sometimes something else that Shaka was going to refine during his reign. Eventually, Shaka had had enough of Makedama's insults and decided to side with Nkazonke, who was the chief of the Langeni, who Makedama was trying to overthrow. Some say that Makedama also tried to take over the Zulu after Senzangakona's death, and that he also tried to kidnap Nandi, Shaka's mother. But a more likely story was told by two men who defected from the Zulu and Konzad Shaka gave their support to him. 
Makedamo was feuding with an unnamed nearby tribe, and the two men, Silwani Kandlovu and Numlet, saw how Shaka fought well, killing all warriors he faced. When the war party arrived back at Langeni headquarters, Makedama rewarded Olungizid, the warriors who'd fought bravely. He left Shaka off that list, and Shaka is said to have confronted Makedama, saying, It's not the impi I stabbed yours, meaning he'd stabbed on behalf of that impi, to which Makedama replied, You do not belong to us. And so Shaka became angry and left to join the Mtetwa of Dingizwayo. That Shaka in fact joined Dingizwayo is a fact, and I'm afraid there are very few of these because so much disinformation exists about Shaka's early life. This series is about trying to tell the story of what happened, and as I've explained, there is so much contradictory information about the Zulu, it's hard to keep track of who makes what allegation about which bloodline. Later, Shaka would not extract ultimate revenge on Makedama, so don't believe all the hype about Shaka, the bloodthirsty general, bent on revenge for his Sigmund Freud's splattered childhood or some weird Oedipal lunacy. The truth, as far as we know, is more interesting. When Sikiti Shaka arrived at Mtetwa territory, he was ensconced at the Umizi of Ngomani. Did he come alone? Some Zulu stories say yes, others say no. Some say he arrived with Nkazonke, Mfundeku, Mbikwana, Mentlameli and Ngeba. Others say he arrived with Silwani Ndlovu and Umleti, the two who'd watched him fight for Makedama. One origin story has it that Shaka arrived with his mother Nandi, his sister Nuntaba, and Nkengeleli of the Butulezi. We don't know. But each of these tales is meant to show how important each of these people were in Shaka's life. As I've said, the years between 1800 and even as far along as 1815 present a big problem for historians searching for answers to what created Shaka and the growth of the empires of the Tukela Pongola catchment. There was trade, but not much, and there was no slavery going on, no high-volume slave trade to speak of. Zwides and Dwanbe were supposedly expanding aggressively, but nothing proves just how aggressively. He may have been doing what everyone else was doing and forcing neighbours into his hegemony. And now we take a look at Delagoa Bay once more, and that is the reason I've spent so much time last episode painting the picture of how busy it was or not, and how crucial the port had been. The high tariffs imposed by the Portuguese starting in 1799 had slowed trade to Mozambique's south. There is proof that Brazilian slave traders were calling more frequently during this period, and about 12,000 slaves per year were being exported to Brazil up until 1812, while French slave traders supplied the Mascarines, you know, Mauritius, Réunion, Domingos, as well as Madagascar. Some slaves were from Mozambique, some from within Madagascar itself. Inland of the bay, other forms of trade grew with firearm-wielding traders from Arabia, India and Europe, and their black proxies making merry, destabilizing the subcontinent, but mainly around northern Mozambique. Dingenswayo was building up his trade with Delagoa Bay, and hunter Henry Francis Finn confirms this, saying that in his first year of chieftainship, Dingenswayo opened trade with the bay and sent a hundred oxen and a large quantity of ivory there in exchange for beads and blankets. Remember, he also set up a carros factory with dozens of men employed to manufacture these skins for export. He had cemented relationships with people who lived along the route to Delagoa Bay, the Nkomalo branch of the Ndwandwe, for example, when he offered his sister Nomatuli to Nkomalo chieftain Malosika Machuku. He built a relationship with Bungani's Klubi, securing most of his northern frontier. 
He also secured tributary relations to the south and east with the Mbunambi and the Dube along the coast. Near the mouth of the Mfulosi, Nkoboka Kalanga of the Sokulu was boosted into the chieftainship, now Dingaswayo controlled the lower Mfulosi River area. South, near the Tugela and Kwabe country, he attacked Mantlakovu of the Ngadi and forced him to Konza. They needed the same to the Tladi people. To the west, Chama of the Tembus and his young heir Ndimba were forced to concede. Kabachi Kadanda of the Kolu was killed and Mapoloba installed. Dingazoya was not loved. He was a violent man. Shaka was taking more mental notes. Then his father Senzangakona pitched up somewhere between 1805 and 1810 when he decided to head off to Dingazoya's great place to search for a new wife or wives. By now Shaka's fame had spread a powerful man who was a classic warrior. The story has it that Senzangakona wanted to meet his long-lost son and was using the hunt for a wife as a pretext. Senzangakona definitely did arrive to visit Tengazwayo, although once again there's a dispute about who was with him and we have no clue about the date. Later, political change is based on these relationships and each one of these people meant different things to Shaka. So Zwiri of the Ndwandwe was also supposed to have arrived at the same time, apparently also looking for wives. Dingazwayo is thought to have given away some of his daughters to Zwede at this moment to reaffirm their relationship. Nkomo Kachandu of the Mbata people could have sat alongside Dingazwayo at this meeting. He had pretensions to independence and had killed messengers sent to him by Dingazwayo. They had been told to ask Nkomo if there were any chiefs greater than the Mtetwa king and Nkomo had promptly killed the messengers. When Nkomo headed home after the meeting, Dingazwayo sent an impi after him with the order, Do not kill him, just stand around him in a circle and beat on your shield. Nkomu fell to his knees in supplication. Dingazwayo was brought to him and stepped over his prone body in a symbolic gesture of supremacy. Nkomu apparently at that moment had a heart attack and died on the spot. The same fate, pretty much, would befall Senzangakona. Dingazwayo was not to be trifled with. Given the inevitable Zulu oral tradition debate, this is what is likely to have happened. Senzangakona was sent for by Ndingazwayo and he showed up sometime after the Nkomo incident with his senior Zulu council Murli and the Amakosigazi, the great wives. A hut was set apart for him and he sat inside meeting with Ndingazwayo. Then a large number of young men entered on a prearranged signal and amongst them was Shaka. He stood to one side, as if he was out of place, as Dingazwayo had ordered. Shaka wore horns around his neck and the Izikro amulets of a man who'd killed others in battle. He looked around for a place to sit, and then he stood before his father, Senzanga Corner, allowing his shadow to fall across his father's face. Everyone saw this. Then Shaka sat down. The hut was in silence. Dingazwayo turned to Senzanga Corner and said, do you see your calf here? Referring to Shaka, of course. Senzangakona said nothing, but scrutinized the young men. He pointed out Shaka and Dingazwayo laughed, then told Senzangakona how well his son had fought, singing his praises. Senzangakona's wives all moved forward and kissed Shaka's arm, and Shaka asked Senzangakona for an asagai. This is all deeply symbolic. The meeting continued in its usual way, 
but the point had been made. Since Zanger Corner had identified his son in public, his possible heir, the stage was set for Senzanger Corner's demise. One night shortly afterwards, as the Zulu chief continued his visit at Dingaswayo's great place, Sharko was doctored by Dingaswayo himself with appropriate medicines, and he stole away to Senzanger Corner's hut. He climbed on top, then washed the medicines off his body, allowing them to drip down onto his father's bed. Senzanger Corner awoke and sent an assistant to look out of the door, and she saw only a vague shape flitting away in the darkness. But everyone knew who it was. Sharko. Senzangakona packed up at first light and headed home, with Dingaswayo's platitudes ringing in his ears, along with a gift of cattle. Senzangakona, the great Zulu chief, didn't make it home. He fell ill on the trail and died before arriving. And thus, Sharko's road to chief of the Zulus was now clear, at least in Dingaswayo's mind. While some may find this story difficult to comprehend, a quick word about Zulu society of the early 1800s and witchcraft. There was an unquestioning belief in the power of witches and medicine, which continues in parts to this day. Debilitating fear has a psychological and physiological effect, and other stories about this magically induced end all agree. I'll spend more time speaking about the role of Nyangas and medicine in Zulu society later. Right now we must hurry onwards. There are many stories about what Sharka did to Sigujana, Senzangakona's preferred heir, but the most likely one was where Sharka waylays Sigujana and kills him. At any rate, Senzangakona was dead, falling on his way home amongst the Makoba people. Sharka then came up to Zulu country with full Mtetwa support, a whole column of an impi. At this time, Sharka was still living in Ungumani Zamuzi, right on the edge of Zulu territory. The Mtetwa Amabuto drove a large herd of cattle ahead of them, sign of the mobile wealth that Shaka had already amassed and required to prove his patronage. Mtetwa warriors who accompanied him included his adopted father figure, Ngomani. They moved on to Mtlabatini with other high-ranking Mtetwa men, and these are named as Mdetwa, Mkono and Lupuzi, all of them Tembu, as well as Makula Kavavani of the Kwabe, Mbikwana and Mfundeku Ka Mgabi, and in Kazonki of the Langeni. So, Sharka's core Zulu support group was not really Zulu. It was a mixture of other tribes, but formed the nucleus of the Umuzi that Sharka established. And that Umuzi or Great Place was called Kwa no Koka, then renamed Mkantlu. This was both a homestead and a group of people, this Mkantlu, a following he'd established in Mtetwa country with Dingaswayo's full support. That was his future court, his main trusted unit. I'm sure those who follow contemporary politics can begin to see the direct correlation of how Shaka Zulu had set up his political future and other recent leaders who hail from KwaZulu-Natal. When modern politicians are steeped in oral tradition I'm describing, you can see how people like Jacob Zuma emerge. It's no surprise. Deeply felt histories are unshakable, so too are deeply ingrained sociological, anthropological truths. Zuma is a man of his countryside, no more, no less, whatever your personal view of him may be. He's most comfortable buried nose-deep in Zulu myths and legends, the creation of the Shaka Empire which forms the core narrative of our country's past. It's only a small leap from Mkantlu to Nkandla, of course. 
So, on arrival at Kwa Nokoka, aka Mkandlu, Shaka went into the main cattle enclosure and formed his contingent of core followers into a semi-circle. The Zulu people emerged, joined the circle, all began to sing the Amhubo songs, revered and respected music. For example, here's a short snippet. Shaka held his war shield up and he advanced into the circle and demanded, Where are the cattle for my father's funeral? And they were brought out. Shaka slaughtered them, destroying the herd and thus asserting his right. The Mtetwa column ate from the meat and returned to Dingizwayo to report back. Meanwhile, Shaka assassinated all of those who would oppose him, or might oppose him, even old man Mudli, who had brought up Shaka, but then changed his mind. He also killed Zivalele, Sujisa, and Nomungoza, the last three sons of Jama, who were also the brothers of Senzanga Kona. But apparently the most brutal murder was that of his half-brother Sigujana, who I've mentioned. They were the same age, and either Shaka himself or his half-brother on his mother's side a man by the name of Ngwadi carried out the deed. Surprise, surprise, the Zulu people themselves willingly seemed to have accepted Shaka's regency. He already had strong support. The women around Senzangakona were particularly influential in swaying the mood of the people, with a mama who kissed his arm, objecting to Sigujama, since his mother, Mpikasi, was not a woman of rank. Nandi, on the other hand, was. As for Shaka's other brothers, they realized their time was up and they took off. The most famous of these was Dingan, who fled to the Kwabe, but he was allowed to return, although much later, as you'll hear. Mpande and Mtlangana disappear from the Zulu oral tradition record and even the records of early traders until Shaka was killed in 1828. The Zulu people saw Shaka as the best hope for the future. Little did they know what dramatic future that would be. This is a major story of origin. It's biblical, it's magical, it's potent, and it continues to be told to kids in KwaZulu-Natal and beyond. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at deslatham. Until next, salagahli. Thank you.